So we have noticed in chapter 5 that David has been anointed as king. Verse number 3, once more, they anointed David king over Israel. And the question is, what sort of a king is he going to be? What will be the nature of his kingdom? Again, you've got to think back to the days in which uh, they were living, and the king had a great influence on the very nature of the kingdom. How the nation functioned was in very much part governed by the actions of the king. They led, they gave direction, they gave counsel, and by their actions they dictated how the kingdom even functioned in that world at that time. Was it going to be all about war and territory? That was the general sense. You read about these nations these days. Every five minutes, someone's invading somebody else. Not much changes, really, is there? And so the time of the day, the nations were seeking to overthrow other nations. They were seeking to expand their borders. Uh, they were seeking to have dominion. And so what about David? What sort of kingdom will David preside over? Well, as we saw in chapter 5, in the summary there, there are various things whereby actions will speak louder than words. What he does gives an insight into his heart. And so it is when you come to chapter 6 and the bringing of the ark. The chapter's about that, the ark of the covenant. Again, the reference there in verse number 2 uh, to the Lord dwelling between the cherubims takes us back clearly to the ark of the covenant in Exodus. The instructions given there. Uh, the ark, the box, shitting wood overlaid with gold into which went the tables of the, of the commandments over which went the mercy seat, the cherubim, and God meeting between the cherubim, the Ark of the Covenant. Well, David's desire is to bring the Ark to Jerusalem, and that very action, that intent, shows much about what he wants the kingdom to be like. It shows both strengths and also some problems in David's early reign, things that are instructive, I think, for our consideration again tonight. But no, first of all then, as you think about this bringing of the ark, at least the first attempt, you know, first of all, there is a desire for God's presence here. We should accept this. We should see it clearly. There is a desire for the Lord's presence. Now, we've got to appreciate something here regarding the ark. Where is it at this time? And what has happened to it? Well, you turn back to 1 Samuel chapter 5. Sorry, 1 Samuel chapter 7. 1 Samuel 7, you'll see the events in 1 Samuel 7, in the days of Eli, and we see what happens in those earlier chapters. There was this idea of bringing the ark to battle, and the ark was lost. And it goes off. The Philistines, again, chapter 6, they send the ark back for a season. Uh, they suffer greatly. The ark's in their company. They suffer from the ark being, and that's chapter 6 of 1 Samuel and then you get to chapter 7, you read this in verse number 2. And it came to pass while the ark abode in Kirjath Jearim, that the time was long for his 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Right, don't worry so much about the time stamp there of 20 years, but note the presence. After all the events, the battle, the ark is lost, Ichabod, the presence of God departing from his people, all the tragedy, Eli's death, all those things. The Philistines, they send the ark back. It then rests at Kirjath Yardim. That's where it ends. After all those events, that's where it rests. We read of it next in chapter 14 of 1 Samuel. 
and the verse number 18. So after all that, we get to 1 Samuel 14, verse 18. And Saul said to Ahiah, Bring hither the ark of God, for the ark of God was that time with the children of Israel. He's getting another battle, another time, and the ark is there as Saul desires the presence of God. But after that, the ark at that point must have again returned back to Kirjath Yarim. Because turn across now to 1 Chronicles chapter 13, please. 1 Chronicles chapter 13. And here you see the reference to Baalah in verse number 6. But it's a parallel account to what we see in 2 Samuel 6, but 1 Chronicles 13. So David gathered all Israel together from Sire of Egypt, even unto the entering of Hamath, to bring the ark of God from Kirjath Jearim. And David went up, and all Israel to Baalah, that is, to Kirjath Jearim, which belonged to Judah, to bring up thence the ark of God, the Lord that dwelleth between the cherubims, whose name is called on it. And they carried the ark in a new cart, and you get the same account of what's happening here. Right? Why do I deal with that? Because in 1 Samuel, when it ends up in Kirjath Jearim, it's after a time of apostasy and destruction and ruin. The people of God have forsaken the Lord and the glory of God has departed from them. And so you get to 2 Samuel chapter 6 once more and you say the reference there, and David arose and went with him that were with him from Baal of Judah to bring up from thence the ark of God. They're going back. It's a recovering. Not in the false dawn of Saul, but in the true dawn of the new and rightful king. And so it's a sense in which the entire nation is coming back to its foundations. That all of the apostasy, all of the degeneracy, all of the tragedy of Saul's reign, and the tragedy of Eli in that time, it's all coming to a head. And David's saying, it's time to get back to principles. It's time to get back to basics. It's an important lesson for the Lord's people. There are times we lose sight of what the main things are. We get distracted in the Lord's work and trouble comes in or perhaps sin comes in and the people of God, they, they fall back from the things of righteousness. And at such a point, it is not a time for new inventions. We'll see that in a minute or two. But it's a time for recovery. It's a time to go back to the first things. And we see that here. And so when you think of the desire for God's presence, we, we should note again the ark's significance to Israel. Why was the ark so important? What was it all about? Well, this time, please turn to Numbers chapter 10. Numbers chapter 10, and you'll see in Numbers 10, something regarding the significance of the ark to the people of God. And it's implied for us here in the words of Moses. Again, this part of the journeys, verse 33, they departed from the mount of the Lord three days' journey, and the ark of the covenant went before them in the three days' journey to search at a resting place for them. And the cloud of the Lord was upon them by day when they went out of the camp. Then it came to pass, when the ark set forward, that Moses said, Rise up, Lord, and let thine enemies be scattered. And let them that hate thee flee before thee. And when it rests, they said, Return, O Lord. You see how important the ark is? 
It was the very significance of the presence of God in the camp. That the ark, again, you, you can look at this in a, in a modern spiritual mind at New Testament church and, and lose sight of this. But for the people of God, Moses said, when the ark rose, rise up, Lord. And when the ark returned, Lord returned. It was the place that marked the very presence of God. The presence that required atonement first. For God to be present with his people, atonement had to be made. Leviticus chapter 16. You go back to Leviticus chapter 16, and you'll know the words of the Day of Atonement. Leviticus chapter 16, verse number 14. And he shall take of the blood of the bullock and sprinkle it with a finger upon the mercy seat eastward. And before the mercy seat shall he sprinkle the blood with his finger seven times. Then shall he kill, and the blood is sprinkled again upon the mercy seat. Verse number 15. And all of this is in the passage about the Day of Atonement and the yearly offering of sacrifice and blood upon the mercy seat that was the lid upon the Ark of the Covenant. How does God dwell between the cherubim? Because the angels can look upon blood, if you like, and justice is satisfied, and God can be there because God is reconciled to man by blood sacrifice. This is significant. These are the very basic principles of religion in the entire Bible. How does God meet with man? Because sacrifice is offered and blood is offered. The blood of the sacrifice in place of the wrath of God upon the sinner. And so the ark's significance to Israel is again significant to all of us in that it indicates Christ in all the scriptures. We saw this morning, here's a picture of Christ here. The shitting wood, the incorruptible wood covered with gold. The union of humanity and deity in the person of Christ Jesus. His willingness to do the will of God for the law is within his heart in the box of the covenant. And upon which sits the mercy seat. These are the very foundational principles of the gospel. And so we're seeing here again in picture form, in type and shadow, where do the Lord's people go to go forward? How do we go forward? Well, in one sense, by going back. You go forward in the Lord's work by going back to the basics. That God meets with man in the personal work of Christ Jesus. That's the significance of the ark to Israel. And what about that then in terms of its significance to David? Why is David so keen? Well, yes, of course, the obvious answer to that is what I've just said. It's significant in that you've got all of these gospel types and shadows in view. But David understands something else. And that is for his kingdom to thrive, he must have the Lord's presence with him. The ark that denotes the presence of God. David understands that if I'm to go forward from now on, I must have the Lord's presence with me. You can see it in different ways. You can see it in terms of the, the, the general sense of having the Lord's favor with him. Or you can see it perhaps in the sense of the priority of gospel worship, godly worship. They are, of course, connected. When God is present, his people worship. And when the ark is present, they're worshiping according to God's mandates. They worship according to God's command, and yet God is present and they worship. You see, for David, 
This kingdom is going to be different. God's kingdoms are always different. The kingdoms of this world, they're about war and dominion. The kingdom of God is a kingdom of worshippers, a kingdom of priests unto God. And so it is not right for David to begin his reign. And yes, there are battles to face and things, wars to be fought. But he understands that the very core of the health of the people of God is a need for them to be worshippers. And that principle, it runs throughout history in every manifestation of the kingdom of God on earth, including the New Testament church. That's what we are, isn't it? We believe that by grace we're born again, and so being born again, we see and enter the kingdom. Where those who preach the gospel of the kingdom, we are a kingdom people. We believe that we sit under Christ's reign. And as such, as his subjects, we must be those who prioritize the place of gospel worship. I want to emphasize this again tonight. I said this morning, my desire was to teach the scriptures, that you'd learn the scriptures. But the end of that is that you would be worshipers unto God. And so many times we think to ourselves, we have satisfied what God requires as a church if we, are, if we are people who teach the Scriptures. But the priority of worship in God's kingdom is clear in the Scriptures. We must be those who give praise and honor to God. Again, one of the things that has attracted attention over the years is a church that can build itself on what we call polemics. A church is against everything. A church that's continually swinging the sword for everybody and seeking to cut off the heads of all their enemies at all times. And every time you come to the church, you're, you're being told what not to believe. It's all about all the enemies out there, and they're all against the church, and it's all polemics, 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 against this, against that, against the other thing. And such can be attractive for a time. But God's kingdom, whilst there's a need for that sometimes, there's a need for the kingdom to be at war. We talk about the church militant, the church at war, but the church first and foremost must worship and it can only go to war when it's worshiping. And if it's not worshiping, it's going to find itself futile and empty in its warfare. God must come first. And when God comes first in our church, then we worship his name and then we will engage in warfare that honors God's. But if God is not first in his church, then this is not a church of God's kingdom. The Lord God must come first in our hearts. We must come here to meet with God. We must come here to worship God. We must desire above all things that God is honored in our midst. It must be God first in our church. And if it's not, we will struggle greatly to go forward in the kingdom. So may God help us in these reminders, not to neglect the importance of getting the ark back into the church of Christ. Christ preeminent, and through Christ preeminence, sinners reconciled to God, whereby God is present and they worship His name. These are, if you like, the ABCs of kingdom life. And if we go away from these things, we will go away from the Lord very, very quickly. So that's the first thing, the desire for God's presence. Secondly, then, note, please, the neglect, the danger of a neglect of God's precepts. And here we come back to the narrative in 2 Samuel, having dealt with kind of the heart, the, the heart 
speak to the passage. What is David's thrust here? You, you get to the details then in chapter 6. A lot of people here. 30,000. Tremendous company here going to bring this, this, this ark all the way back to Jerusalem. We see similar things, of course. You want to uh, get a real idea of this in, in real terms. Think of London at the present time. And the scenes we'll see tomorrow when you think of the, the moving of the, of the Queen's body from Westminster Hall to, to the Abbey. And you'll see all the people and all the ceremonies. It's a similar scene here. Of course, not in a funeral scene. This is a scene of celebration. But you get the idea of a large crowd gathering. And it seems to be, again, I'm only surmising, it seems to be that the occasion demanded some novelty. This is a new occasion. We should build a new cart for the ark. This is a grand occasion. We've got to make sure we do our best to honor this occasion, and we will we'll make sure the ark has a, a good passageway back to Jerusalem. Verse number 3, it's a new cart. Don't, don't miss that. It's novel. This is a new idea. Makes sense. Again, it shows the dignity of the ark. It shows the honor given to the ark. It's carried in such a way. It's surely a good idea. But of course, as you know the story, what happens? They go on. Oh, there's much joy and celebration, but they get to the threshing floor in verse number six, and Asa puts forth his hand to the ark of God. It leads. This novelty leads to what may be called a necessary sinful action. What do you do? You don't let the ark drop. Well, there's no choice in his mind, he would say. And so he puts his hand. Again, there are different ideas. Some suggest it's just steady in the ark. Others actually get the idea the ark was so unsteady that Uzzah took the ark and had to carry it. Given the size and the weight, more than likely he just puts his hand to steady the ark. And he touches the Lord's. The Lord's honor and the Lord's glory. And God judges. It's interesting, the word that is used in verse number 8, broken out or breach, was used back in chapter 5 in the verse number 20 regarding God smiting there, smiting the Philistines. And same idea, God breaking forth upon mine enemies. And as God judged the Philistines, so the same God in the same wrath comes and judges us. He makes a breach. He breaks upon Uzzah in judgment. David responds in two ways. Verse 8, in anger, displeased. And fear, verse number 9. David was afraid. Note those two responses. He was displeased and he was afraid. Understandable. Surely this is too severe. Even if Uzzah was wrong, this punishment surely is not, it's not fitting the crime. What is the big deal here? Well, I think in part, you should see this like the death of Nadab and Abihu and the death of Ananias and Sapphira. Similar things have been done since, and people have not lost their lives. And so it seems that in history, at certain times, God sets down a marker of His judgment against particular sins. Nadab and Abihu, the strange fire in Leviticus chapter 10, here, Uzzah in the cart in, 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 in 2 Samuel 6, Acts, Ananias and Sapphira. This idea of God saying, these are serious sins and judgment will come. So what's the issue here? What's the seriousness? Well, you go back to Numbers chapter 4. 
And you'll see the issue here is not so much with us as touching as it is with the new cart. That's not to minimize the touching. That's a very, very serious matter. That was a sin in itself. But it all begins with the desire to be novel in the work of God, to be creative and inventive. And when we are inventive and creative in the work of God, we lack reverence to the purposes of God. God always knows what's best. We don't. And when we begin to be novel in the work of God, we are essentially saying that God has made a mistake in His law and in His will. And when we say that God has made a mistake in His law and His will, we essentially have ungodded God. Is it any wonder that others struck down? You see, Numbers chapter 4 gives us the instructions regarding the way to carry the ark. Verse 5, And when the camp set us forward, Aaron shall come and his sons, and they shall take down the covering veil and cover the ark of testament with it, and shall put thereon the covering of badger skins and spread over it a cloth holy of blue, and shall put in the staves thereof. The staves to carry it. Verse 15, when they made an end of covering the sanctuary, as the camp is set forward, after that the sons of Korah shall come to bear it, but they shall not touch any holy thing, lest they die. It's a clear warning here. This is how it must be done, and you do it my way, or judgment will fall. Surely the Lord God who made the world has a right to issue such decrees. It is the honor of his name at stake. In verse 17 and following, you'll see the Cordites and their task in this way of carding the service of God. Numbers chapter 7, verse number 9 gives one other, uh, one other important reference. And it was their duty, verse number 9, but unto the sons of Korath he gave none, because the service of the sanctuary belonged unto them, was that they should bear upon their shoulders. See how clear this is? This is, this is not a matter of Christian liberty, if I can use that term this morning, where you're wondering, what is the mind of God in this? He has made it very, very clear. Cover it and carry it upon your shoulders. And the only ones who can do that are the sons of Koath. There is one other issue, perhaps, and that is what we read about in 1 Samuel chapter 6. And let me read to you these words. 1 Samuel chapter 6 and verse number 7. When it came to the Philistines returning the ark, they said, And now therefore make a new cart, and take two milch kine, of which there hath come no yoke, and tie the kin to the ark of the cart, and bring their calves home from them, and take the ark of the Lord and lay it upon the cart. See what's happening here? The people of God in David's time, they become inventive, they become clever, innovative, and in so doing, they've copied the ways of the world. I don't think it's hard to make the application, is it? There are certainly several lines of application, but primarily we have no right to be inventive when it comes to the service of God. No right at all. Our duty is to do what God says. And whenever, and you will see this in the wider church, whenever the church seeks to be novel, it ends up mimicking the world in their desires for growth in their societies, in their groups. How do you build groups? 
You give people what they want in their groups. They want this, we'll provide this. They want that, we'll provide that. And so you, you begin to, to, to develop your practices around the desires of people in such a way that you're seeking some sort of church growth idea. Now that necessarily, may not necessarily be wrong in every occasion. We want the church to grow. But not through novelty, but through obedience to the commands of God. You see here that people could say all sorts of things. Our objective was good. So you get the same idea in a church that is seeking to be contemporary and new and novel. You could say, well, our desire is that people would come to the Lord. Our objective is good. It's honorable. You get the idea that we're sincere in our emotions, that they were dancing and playing. They were, they were delighted in the things of God. Verse number 5 of 2 Samuel 6, there's great joy in the things of God. But these excuses, they do, not under, they do not excuse what's happening in the very core where they've been neglectful of God's precepts. They could say, well, we thought it would work. It's going to work, therefore we should do it. Again, we come back to basics. The Bible is very clear regarding the primary task of the church. It is to gather for the apostles' doctrine, for prayer, for praise, for sacraments, and for the giving, for the help of the Lord's people and the Lord's work. It is extremely simple. And it is one of the tragedies of our modern entertainment age that is not enough. And so the church looks at the world and says, well, clearly what we do is not enough. We need to be novel. We need to do new things. And so we'll copy the world in its growth methods or in its music, or in its methods, and we get to the point that we're taking initiative in the Lord's service. I don't believe necessarily that's the heart here by any means. But the passage before us, I've got to preach the passage. So let's not take initiative in the Lord's work. Do what the Lord says. And leave the results to the Lord. We've got to take great care when it comes to the Lord's honor, the Lord's name, the presentation of the gospel. I suppose in summary form, don't trifle with the Almighty. People play fast and loose with the Lord's work. Treat it with carelessness and abandonment. Lacking reverence and honor for the Lord's cause and the Lord's name. The Lord here is saying, this is how I will be served. Even how I want my ark to be moved. We've got to realize that when it comes to the work of God, God's name is attached here. As God's name was attached to the ark and dwelt between the cherubim, so God's name is attached to his church. And we must take great care how we treat the work of God. As a leadership that we do not seek to lead you into paths that are not according to God's word. But for all of us, that we are careful to reverence and honor the name of God in this place. May God help us. The danger of neglecting God's precepts. Thirdly then, finally, just briefly, the delight in God's pleasure. See, what happens next is, one of those little fascinating asides regarding one person and his house. David's fear, again, I say was understandable. And he says, how shall the ark of the Lord come to me? Verse number 9. And so David does not bring the ark to the city of Jerusalem, but takes it to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittites. 
The ark continued there, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and his household in verse number 11. We're not directly told how that is the case. Was it fertility in his fields, his flocks, his family? Was it some idea of God's temporal blessings that was tangible, obvious? We're not told. But clearly, there was obvious signs that God was blessing his house at this point in the same time that the ark of God was there. I have three layers of application, and then we'll say amen. First of all, this is a lesson to David. Essentially, the Lord is saying to David, by blessing Obed-Edom, David, bring the ark to Jerusalem. Do not fear. The Lord is dealing with David's mind here by the blessings. So you get the verse number 12. It was told King David saying, the Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom. So David went and brought the ark of God. It's a sense that he got the point. That as he lived in fear, he was to understand that you have no right to question or argue with the Lord. That God will do as he will do to us and to others who will break his law. But when it comes to the ark, it is God's presence that brings blessing. And therefore, though you may come to fear God, to fear God does not imply the need for distance from the Lord. I think there are some, again, who find themselves confronted with the living God. They realize that God is not to be mocked. God is to be feared. And the response is, God is so fearful, I want nothing to do with the Lord. And they behave like their first father, and they go back into the trees and seek to hide themselves from the Lord. And so they say, well, God is to be feared. God does this sort of thing. The point is, that the God who is to be feared is a God who gladly blesses. And when things are done His way, He delights to bless those who are with Him in Christ's name. So you may fear God tonight, but don't flee from God. God comes and brings blessing. So first of all, there is a lesson to David. Secondly, There is the lesson regarding God's blessing, and that is, I've just said, God's blessing comes in connection with His presence. Remember, I was told years and years ago, I can't remember who told me it, but sometimes back home, I'm going to use this term, if somebody sneezes and it goes back to the days of the plague, they would say, bless you. This idea of, of just a general prayer that, even the ungodly were Jews. And sometimes, well, well, may God bless you. You know, we need to remind the world that blessing only comes in and through Christ Jesus. And the blessing that Obed-Edom enjoyed here was a blessing that's connected to the Ark of the Covenant. The Gospel and the presence of Christ. Which leads to the third layer of application. And that is the Ark is central in bringing God's blessing to your homes. We want the Lord to bless our families. But perhaps are slow to bring Christ into our homes. Oh, religion's for the church. It's for public. It's not for our homes. I'm not going to pray in my home. I'm not going to consider Christ in our homes. I'm going to keep the ark away. And neglect of Christ in the home 
is a pathway not to blessing, but to trouble. Now, you all know, I understand very clearly, that keeping Christ in the home is not a guarantee of household salvation. There are many godly homes, and their children go the way of the world. But at the same point, we have a general principle here. The Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household in connection with the presence of the ark. And surely God is pleased to use the means of grace. And as the word of God is taught and worship of Christ is engaged in our homes, there the blessing comes. So David's to learn these things and sort of we. So, chapter 6. It is, I believe, a sense in which David returns to first principles. His kingdom is going to go forward by going back to those things of first importance. And may that be so in our homes, in our church, and for the glory of Christ's name. God is to be feared. But he comes in Christ and is willing to be with us and to bless us when we're reconciled through the blood of the Lamb of God. Let's bow together, please, in prayer. These gospel reminders, again, I, I trust they will stir your own mind and your heart. You consider your own situation before God, God to be feared, and yet there is forgiveness with God. Let's bow together in prayer. Heavenly Father, help us tonight. We thank you again for this narrative this evening. We pray the lessons drawn would be indeed according to your will and to your uh, good pleasure, that we would walk in your ways. You'd help us, O Lord, to be careful and attentive to your word, that we'd obey, and as we obey, that you'd be pleased to bless us with your presence. Grant us help this evening in Jesus' precious name. Amen.